Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. As promised, we are going to finish the book of Ecclesiastes tonight. The last two chapters are relatively short. Then next week, we will begin the Proverbs of Solomon. And hopefully then you will see why we worked through these books progressively the way we did and why historically the wisdom books have always been in that order. Because they start with the large narrative of Job where there is kind of one essential lesson being taught all the way through the larger narrative. And then in the book of Ecclesiastes, you get subjects, and you get some discussion of various different subjects. And then when we get to Proverbs, there are short sentences, there are short little thoughts, independent, pithy phrases that almost stand on their own. And so we've gone from large narrative down to single thoughts. And you'll see that as we begin the book next week. I got a call a couple of months ago from a fellow who was, let's just say, advanced in years. He said that he was looking for a church and that he had visited a church recently. And he liked it. He said, you know, it was a good church, good congregation, good body of believers there. He said, but the the pastor was a really young guy. And I said, so what was your reaction to that? And he said, I don't think I'll ever be able to look at him as my pastor. Because he said, as a young man, he hasn't been through the stuff I've been through. He wouldn't know how to relate to the problems of aging, to the problems of life. In the culture that we live in now, it's a very youth-oriented culture. In the Bible, and especially here in Solomon's thinking, it's the people who are of age, the people who have lived a while, who are the repositories of knowledge because they've already been through things. Not only have they had time to collect wisdom, information, knowledge over time, but they've also had experience. And that's what this fellow was kind of talking about, saying, well, this, this young fella has some book learning, and he's been to seminary. He knows some theology, but he still doesn't know life. And a lot of what Solomon's going to tell us here at the end of Ecclesiastes has to do with life and has to do with what it is to be aging. And we're going to relate to that, at least I know I do. So starting in chapter 11, we finished in chapter 11 last week, the first couple of verses, and we talked about the phrase, cast your bread upon the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. And I interpreted that to be making sure that your investments are kind of far and wide, that if God has blessed you, then share those blessings Because you never know what's coming in the future, and it's good to have friends. It's good to have people who are sort of indebted to you. And so Solomon says, cast your bread upon the waters or upon the seas, which means to disperse them, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight Because you don't know what misfortune may come on the earth. So it would be good to have people who you have already given to while you had something to give. Because someday you may actually need their help. But then if you look at the larger context, by the time you get to verse 3 and Solomon talking about full clouds that burst, perhaps 
he was not speaking just of investment in the first two verses. Perhaps he's also speaking about the necessity for charity and for dispersing what you have if you have. If God has given you a lot, then share the lot that you have. In that case, then, there's a parallel between the idea of casting your bread out onto the waters, and then it comes back to you eventually. You will find it after many days. And the idea in verse 3 of when clouds are full, they pour out rain on the earth. That's a truism. Whenever you see the clouds bursting, it's because In his thinking, they've become full and they have to let go of the rain that is stored up in them. So he may be drawing a parallel there in order to say when people have too much, when people have plenty, when they are full, that it's good to disperse it, to let others have it, to be charitable with it. So let's tie those three verses together. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters For you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight. For you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. And if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And then this very odd phrase. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, There it lays. Okay, yep, that's true. Absolutely, I'm with you. I read at least eight, nine different commentaries for that one portion of one verse. And there was no unanimity of thought. Nobody's sure what Solomon had in his head when he wrote that. But as you go on and look at the context of chapters 11 and 12, you're going to see that Solomon is talking about the end of life and that he is talking about the progress of aging. You're going to see that real clearly in just a moment. So perhaps when he says the tree falls, whether to the north or the south, and then wherever it falls, that's how it remains, He may be saying, in human life, when it comes to an end, just like when a tree's life comes to the end and it falls, that when human life comes to an end, that whatever state it was in, that's where it remains. It's possible that's what he means, but I'll be honest with you, if you have a different idea of what it means, your guess really is as good as anybody else's, because like I said, there's no unanimity of thought on what exactly Solomon's getting at there. I think he's saying life goes on for a while and then it ends. And when it ends, wherever that tree falls, that's where it is. So that takes us to verse 4. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. What he means by that is he's advocating for diligence. He's advocating for get out there, sow seed, be ready for the coming harvest. And if you just stand around and look at the wind and look at the rain, look at the clouds all the time and say, well, I'm waiting for the perfect day to get out there and and I'm going to do it. I'm going to get to work. Uh, There's a day coming. And when that perfect day comes and the wind is just right and it looks like the clouds are going to hold, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to start planting. But if you do that, when it comes harvest time, you'll have nothing to harvest because you were so busy waiting. So he's advocating for diligence. Now, I mentioned earlier that Solomon is writing from the perspective perspective of an aging man talking to younger folks. You're going to see that more apparently as we continue, but you're really going to see it when we get to the book of Proverbs, when Solomon is writing, to my son, to my son, all this stuff that he's trying to hand down to younger people. And this is very much in that melu, if I can use that word. And yes, I can, because I just did. 
is very much along the line of that kind of thinking. He's saying, be diligent. Don't be lazy. Do things because they need to be done, not because you're waiting for a convenient time to do it. He's going to continue to extrapolate on that idea in verse 5. Starting again at verse 4, he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap, just as you do not know the path of the wind. And you do not know, remember that I said the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes is all about what human beings don't know and what they can't know. You don't know the path of the wind. And you don't know how the bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman. So you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. So whether it's a baby in a womb or whether it's the wind blowing on a field, that's all the activity of God. And you have no knowledge of it. You have no control over it. You have no comprehension of it. And you certainly cannot control it. So he makes the point that you need to do what you're supposed to do when the time comes to actually go and do it because you don't know what's coming. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't really know how to read the wind. And even if you go outside today and think, oh, clear skies, you don't even know if you're going to be here tomorrow or whether it's going to pour down rain tomorrow. I am confident with these tornadoes that just recently ripped through the Midwest People were affected by it, and I'll bet not a one of them woke up that morning thinking, probably a tornado today. Probably going to lose my house and everything I own today. They all got up. They started their day. The storms began. The tornadoes came. That's what Solomon's saying. You don't know what's coming. You have no control over anything. You have no real understanding. And if you think you do have understanding, explain how it is that inside a woman's womb, bones grow. How does that happen? He said, well, if you don't know that, then don't think you know God. Because he can do whatever he wants. You do not know the activity of God who makes everything. So do this. Verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning. Do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed. In other words, get up in the morning, get out there, do your work. Get up in the evening, get out there, do your work. Because in the long run, you don't know whether it's the morning work or the evening work that's actually going to pay off. So rather than standing around looking at the circumstances, looking at the clouds, looking at the wind and saying, well, I don't think it's the right time yet. Instead, get out there and do what you're supposed to be doing. And then you're going to be able to reap a harvest one way or the other because you've done the things that you're supposed to do. Sow your seed in the morning. Do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. That would be a good day. If you find out everything you did, morning and evening, all worked, good job. But we use phrases to this very day like, don't put all your eggs in one basket, because we understand that if you put all of your confidence into one small thing and concentrate everything there, if that fails, you end up with nothing. And so Solomon is saying, get out there, be diligent, morning and evening, whatever the circumstances, whatever the clouds, whatever the wind, get out there and do the work because you just don't know how it's going to come out. And since you don't know how it's going to come out, you can either sit there and starve, making excuses for yourself, or you can get to work, put your best foot forward, do what you can do, because you don't know which thing you've done is going to pay off or whether it's all going to pay off. And then if it all pays off, happy days. Verse 7. Now he's going to start talking about what it is to be alive and what it is to feel yourself aging. Light is pleasant. And it's good for the eyes to see the sun. You know, all the way through the book, he's been using that phrase, everything under the sun. So that means everything that goes on in life. And he says, while you're alive, 
while there's light that you can see, while you're still living under the light of the sun, that's pleasant and it's good. It's good to be under the sun. And indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in every one of them. Let him rejoice in every year that God gives him. If you enjoy every year that God gives you, then year by year by year, you're content. You're satisfied with the years that God has given you, and you never have to look back and regret. As I often tell people, regret will eat you alive. So you don't have to look back on your life in regret if you learn to do the very thing that Solomon's been advocating, which is day by day, whatever you have in front of you, be thankful for it, enjoy it for that moment, do the work that's in front of you, be grateful to God, and understand contentedly that whatever has come to you is what God has decided to bring to you. Be grateful. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in all of them. And let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. In other words, he's going to start talking about rejoice young man in the next verse. He's talking about young men and old men. And he says, while you're young, remember that the days of darkness are coming. Remember that tough days are coming. Remember that it's good to live in the light. It's good and pleasant to be under the sun. But remember, you're not always going to be under the sun. There's going to be dark days ahead, and there are going to be many. And everything that is to come will be futility. So rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. So you young men, enjoy it. Be happy. Because guys like me, we look at you and we hate you. (laughs) No, no. We we look at you with a certain amount of envy. You know, there are phrases, little truisms that have been around as long as I've been alive. Phrases like, uh, if I had known I was going to live this long, I'd have taken better care of myself. Or phrases like, it's a shame that youth is wasted on the young. Or phrases like, I wish I knew then what I know now. Wouldn't it be great to have the amount of accumulated knowledge that you've gathered through your whole life and be young enough to go do something with it? Oh, that'd be great. I've told many people, by the time I figured life out, I was too old to do anything about it. So it takes time, it takes age in order to really figure stuff out. And then you start figuring out that it was good to be young. (laughs) Those were good days. So rejoice, young man, during your childhood. And let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood. And then if you took this completely from its context, you would say that Solomon is advocating for while living, stick with me for a moment, because he says, follow the impulses of your heart and the desire of your eyes. That sounds like pretty bad advice for young men. If you just tell young men willy-nilly, just go out and do whatever you want to do, follow your natural impulses in your heart, and whatever your eye desires, chase that. Well, Solomon is saying that's the way young men act, but... Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So if you were to go and live like that, he says, remember God. Remember first off that God exists and that he's a judge. And let that temper your activity while you're young. Yes, you're young. Yes, enjoy it. Yes, enjoy the light. Yes, enjoy the fact that you can run faster and jump higher. Enjoy the fact that you're young. And do pursue those things that bring happiness into your life, but always temper your behavior and your choices by the knowledge that God is with you and that God is a judge. And if you remember that, so that you're careful with the things you let into your life, verse 10 says, if you do that, you remove vexation from your heart. 
and you put away pain from your body because you're not going to have to undergo the judgment of God in this lifetime if you just remember that he's always there first. Because, now watch, watch the witness I get behind this one. Because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Mm-hmm. Really? You? You went with that? I really expected everybody up in the front here to just join me in testifying that it goes fast. When I was young, when I was in school, it seemed like school went on forever. And then the older I got, the quicker time seems to go by. And then suddenly I woke up one day and I was this guy. And I looked around and thought, how did that happen? I was just getting started. (laughs) Carol's testifying. I was just getting going. I was just figuring stuff out. I was just sorting out the wheat from the chaff in this life. I'm just getting, and oh, now I'm this. Solomon says it, childhood and the prime of life. Childhood when you're a kid, prime of life, 20s, 30s, 40s, that kind of period. He says it all just goes by so quick. And before you know it, you're going to look back on your life and ask, where'd it go? How did I get here already? So that's the end of chapter 11. But through all of that, whether a child, whether prime of life, whether an old person, remember, verse 1 of chapter 12 says, remember also your creator. In the days of your youth, before the evil days come or the dark days come, before those days that will suddenly be on you when you go, how did this happen? How did I get here so quick? When you're young and you're going through the days of your youth, remember your Creator. That word remember is a whole lot more than just, oh yeah, I remember him. It's to reverence him. It's to pay attention to him. It's to walk in steps that are obedient to him. It is the remembrance on a constant basis that God is present with you. Do that. Remember your creator all the days of your youth before those dark days come and the years draw near when you will say, I'm not enjoying this. It's a paraphrase. What's written here is, I have no delight in them. And it's the same thing. Days are coming. The days are coming when you're going to be going, okay, this is rough. I'm not enjoying this. Which is why, again, we have phrases, colloquialisms, like old age is not for sissies. Yeah, you got to be ready for it. You got you to go in slugging. Well, that's the same idea he's writing here that you're going to reach the point of saying, okay, these are the days I'm not enjoying. Now, I hope for all of you, I especially hope for you kids, that God blesses you with long life, that God blesses you with pleasant days, but then also lets you live a long and a full life. I hope someday that you'll look back and remember the Wednesday night that you were at GCA when Pastor Jim, that old bald guy, said to me that there was going to be a day when I was going to look up and go, how did this happen? My life just flew by and I'm not enjoying this anymore. How often have you heard me use the phrase, I've enjoyed as much of this life as I can stand? That's where these kind of phrases come from. It's why people say stuff like that. Because you do reach the point where you say, life's tough. And it didn't always seem tough. When I was young, it didn't seem tough. Get up every day, go like the wind. Woo! Wasn't tough. Not at all. Call my friends. Let's get together. Go out and do crazy stuff. What Life is not tough. Now I get up every day and I look at my wonderful wife and I say, Do we have to get up? Do we got to go again? Here we go. (laughs) It's tough. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light 
and the moon and the stars are darkened. Now he's describing what old age is like. Back when you're young, you're in the light. You're in the sun. It's good. It's pleasant. Enjoy it. But the days are coming when the sun and the light, the moon, the stars are going to become dark like clouds that return after the rain. The way that clouds block out the light that's coming down from the heavens. That's what it's like when your age causes your eyes to become dim and the lights are not as apparent as they once were. In the days that the watchmen of the house tremble, he's going to use a couple different euphemisms here to describe what it is as the body ages. I think when he says the watchmen, the watchmen in a house, their job was to stay awake, stay alert, stay on guard. The people inside, you're going to guard them, you're going to look after them, but there's even a day when they become too old to do their job, and that's what he's describing. Eventually, in the human body, the watchman, the arms, the outer body starts to tremble, and mighty men, men that once could stand up strong and tall, begin to stoop. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. I had trouble with the phrase, the grinding ones, because I was thinking of somebody grinding out grain on a millstone or something, and then I read, because they are few. And so there I go back to the, the various different commentaries. What in the world could he mean here? And the most consistent view, which I think is accurate, is that when he's talking about the grinding ones that stand idle, he's referring to teeth. He's referring to your molars. He's referring to the way you grind your food And then they stand idle because they're few. And those who look through windows grow dim. Obviously, he's talking about the windows of the soul. He's talking about your eyes. He's talking about the fact that you used to be able to look out at the world as if you were looking through a window. Because when you're standing, like, okay, here, I'm standing. I see none of me right now. That's why we have mirrors, so that we can look at ourselves. I have to put my hand out here to look at it, but even then, I can't look at my back. I can't get around there. I can't. So my view of the world, my interaction with the world, is what I see. That I'm looking out as if I'm looking out through a window at the waiting world. And it's the same for you. Your eyes are the ways that you interact with the world. That ability to look through windows becomes dim. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. If it's true that the grinding ones that he spoke of previously has to do with teeth, has to do with molars, has to do with the inability to chew, then the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low As you stop being able to eat, you lose your desire to eat, and you close your mouth. And that's probably what the doors of the street are shut. That's probably the euphemism he's getting at. And one will arise at the sound of a bird. What he's saying is you can't sleep. You can't sleep anymore. And the slightest little sound, you're awake. Laying in bed, you finally get to sleep. Some bird outside chirps, and I'm awake again. And one will arise to the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song will end up singing softly. That's, that's the loss of hearing, the inability to hear anymore until you can't enjoy music anymore. And as your voice seems to lose the strength that it once had, you don't care to sing anymore, and you don't care to hear music anymore. So what he's described through these couple of verses is the aging process. Now, let's put it in context. He said to the young people, remember your creator in the days of your youth because darker days are coming. And then he describes what those darker days are going to be like. They're going to be the days that you say, I have no joy, I have no delight in those days. Because the sun, the light, the moon, the stars become dark like clouds that return after rain. And in that day, 
the watchmen of the house begin to tremble. Mighty men stoop. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. And those who look through windows grow dim. And the doors on the streets are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. And one will arise at the song of a bird. And all the daughters of song will sing softly. And furthermore, once all of that has gone wrong with you, furthermore, men are afraid of high places and of terrors on the road. This is a tough one. I'm going to be honest with you here on this one. We were at a party Sunday afternoon. Janine, my wonderful wife. Everyone, Janine, my wonderful wife, wonderful wife, everyone. We were at a party Sunday afternoon. Charlie had a gathering in her house. And uh, they had a, a game, a couple of games going in the backyard. Spike ball. Man, I was watching the young guys play spike ball. And there were some guys who played it well. And they were playing. Eden kept saying to me, come on, Jim, come play. Because they would need a fourth partner. Come on, come play. I said, no, you know, it's hot. And well, I'm in jeans. And everybody else in shorts. And no, no, I'm not. No, I'm not going to play. No, because I, I figured I'd embarrass myself. <laughs> and uh, driving home, I said to Janine, this is frightening to me, but I just realized why I said no. I was scared. I've reached that point in my life where I'm scared to do things. I was never scared before. But I was afraid, oh, if I get up and do it, you know, the way my back sometimes acts up or the way my knees aren't what they used to be or the way, you know, I'll embarrass all these young guys are really good at it. And I'll look a fool and I'll, you know, I was scared and I admitted it to her. I, I was just afraid. So yesterday we had some people over at the house. They started playing spike ball in the backyard. I started by tossing a football with Micah over here who can throw a football the length of my yard. And so I had to go like, come closer so we can throw the football. Because <laughs> I can throw one, but not as far as that. So I got my courage up. I'd thrown the football a few times. It was getting good to me. Starting to feel like, that's right, that's right. I get a little pepper on this thing. Uh-huh. I can throw a football. A little while later, they were like, Jim, come play spike ball. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to play spike ball. So I did. I got over there and I got into a round of spike ball with everybody because in my mind, I wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't afraid. Now, between you and me, I stunk at spike ball. I was just no good at it at all. But I enjoyed it because I laid in bed last night and went, okay, I conquered that one. That fear didn't get the best of me. But you reach the age, whether you like it or not, you reach the age where life just seems more scary. And you start assessing things on the basis of, am I afraid? Here Solomon says, men are afraid of high places. They don't want to go up on a hill or on a mountain or on a cliffside. The things that you used to do when you were young, yeah, put me on the edge of a cliff, yeah, no problem, ha, ha, ha. Now you're like, no, I don't want to get near anything high or difficult. Or... They're afraid of the high place and of terrors on the road. They don't want to go out anymore. They don't want to go places anymore because they're afraid of what might happen. And because bad things might happen, it's just safer to stay home, keep your head down, stay low. That's what happens when people age. Men are afraid of high places and terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms in the Middle East, by and large, men's hair to this day is black. The almond tree, when it buds, goes white. And so I think that's what Solomon is saying. When people get older, the hair goes white. Just the same way that the almond buds go white. 
And a man that used to be youthful, who could jump around like a grasshopper, now drags himself along. There's no more hopping. There's no more leaping. And the caperberry is ineffective. The caperberry, some of your translations, like the King James translation, will say that your desires are waning or ineffective. And that's essentially what it is. The caperberry was euphemistic for your desires because it was a very luscious fruit that people desired because of its good flavor. But it was also broadly known to be an aphrodisiac. You can fill in the blanks there now. And it's ineffective. And so pretty much all the desires of life are now just one by one falling away. The hair goes white, the terrors and the fear come up, and the desires wane. For a man goes to his eternal home while the mourners go about on the street. There's a little contrast there between the people that are still alive and still mourning, but clearly that man has died and he has gone on to his eternal home. This is the first clue that you get that Solomon expects that when people die, there is still a home for them. There is still a life for them. Some commentators say that what he's referring to here is the grave. But in a moment, he's going to talk about eternal life. So I think that's what he's referring to here as the eternal home that dead men go to. So remember him. The translators add that phrase in verse 6. Before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Here's what appears to be going on. The silver cord appears to be a reference to the spinal column and to the way that the spinal column goes from the head down to past your hips, and how everything that happens in your brain that relates with your body all goes through that chordal system, in which case, if that's what Solomon's referring to, then the golden bowl would be the brain, would be the mind, and that eventually, when the spine is broken or when it's severed, when it stops working, then the golden bowl is crushed. And people dry up. The pitcher by the well is shattered. You would use the pitcher in order to get water out of the well. And the wheel at the cistern with which you would bring water up is is gone. Now, among the more, there's a word I'm trying to think of. All day today, I've been saying to myself, don't forget that word. I'm going to go with different words. Among those folks who were more esoteric in their worldview, particularly those who believe in things like astral projection, do you know what I mean by that? Their concept is that the silver cord that connects their spiritual being to their physical body, they describe it, and you can look at it right now. You can go online, you can go Google it, just Google silver cord, and the first several things you're going to get are metaphysical sites, that's the word I was looking for, are metaphysical sites that are going to talk about the silver cord that connects the spirit body and the physical body. If that's the case, if that's what Solomon's writing about, then when that silver cord is broken, that is exactly commensurate with death. And if that's the case, then the golden bowl is the spirit that is separated from the body permanently. And the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel by the cistern is crushed. All of that is descriptive of dying. So whether the silver cord specifically has to do with something metaphysical or whether it has to do with your spinal column, what we know for sure is that Solomon at this point is describing what it is to die. It's the end of life. And then the dust will return to the earth As it was, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. 
and the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit, notice, will return to God who gave it. So there again is the evidence that Solomon understood and was completely convinced of an afterlife, that the spirit leaves the body, the spirit doesn't remain in the grave, the spirit returns to God, and it was God that gave the spirit of life in the first place, which is exactly what Genesis says, when the spirit of God breathed into Adam and made Adam a living soul. So remember him, remember God, remember your maker, remember your creator before all that happens. This is part of why I said that the tree falling to the north or the south, whatever state it falls in, that's where it remains. That's kind of why I understand it that way or interpret it that way, because Solomon is talking about the finality of death here in verses 6, 7, and 8. And he is saying, remember God first and foremost before you die, before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed, before that, before the dust returns to the earth that it was drawn up out of and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And then finally, he sums up all of life. The same way he summed it up at the beginning. This is like a bookend at the end of the book. And he says the same thing he said at the beginning of the book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. It's all vanity. Beginning to end, human life is all vanity. So, verse 9. In addition to being a wise man... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he thought about it, he pondered, he searched things out, and he arranged many proverbs, which is why next we're going to read the Proverbs of Solomon, because he's taken the time now to say, I've thought about this stuff, I've shared the knowledge that I gathered with other people. I searched it out and I arranged it all in a way where I can transfer the knowledge that I've acquired to all of you. I've arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write the words of truth correctly. Delightful words there means I've tried to find words of wisdom, words of happiness, words of purpose, words of knowledge, words that are worth passing on, words that when you hear them you go, oh, I'm glad I heard that. I sought to do that, he says, and to write down the words of truth correctly. Now, the words of wise men are like goads. Do you know what a goad is? Uh, like an ox goad. It's a stick that you would poke an animal with in order to get the animal to move. And so he says words, good words from a wise person, have the same effect on you. They prod you to keep going. The words of a wise man are like goads. And masters of these collections, these collections of proverbs, these collections of the words, the wise words that he's passing on, people who understand them and master them, he says, the masters of these collections are like well-driven nails, and they are given by one shepherd. So a person who pays attention to wisdom and knowledge, a person who pays attention to the writings of Solomon, the person who takes to heart the knowledge that the Bible has in it and applies it to his life, recognizes it through the course of his life, that person is like a well-driven nail. Isn't that a brilliant statement? Anybody here ever driven a nail badly? <laughs> we all have. Before you learn to use a hammer correctly, you'll bend a nail and... Then you'll get frustrated and just go, that's it, I'm flattening the nail right into the wood. That's it. <laughs> but I've seen professionals with a hammer and a nail, just two hits, most, just boom, boom. That nail is right in the perfect place the way it's supposed to be, dug right into the wood. Perfect. And he says, why are they able to do that? Because they know how. That's like a perfectly driven nail. 
And if you listen to my words, if you pay attention to what I've written, if you gain the knowledge that I've spent my whole life trying to gain and pass on to you, you're going to be like that well-driven nail. But beyond this, my son, by the way, notice the phrase, beyond this, my son, because when we get to the book of Proverbs next week, it starts with, listen to me, my son. So here is kind of that introduction again to Proverbs, which is why we read Ecclesiastes before Proverbs. But beyond this, my son, be warned. Because the writing of many books is endless. And excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. In other words, there's always going to be another book. There's always going to be somebody else with an opinion and a typewriter. There's always going to be people just churning out an endless amount of words. And he says, and after a while, if all you do is just sit and read books, it's actually tough on your body. You got to get up and move. You got to get up and you have to apply what you've learned. If you just sit and just keep absorbing the information but don't do anything with it, that's just another exercise of vanity. It's good to read wise things. It's good to read books, but then you need to get up and do something with it. Apply the knowledge that you've gained. Verse 13, the conclusion, when everything is heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Doesn't matter what your life is. Doesn't matter Where you live, it doesn't matter whether things went really well in your life or whether things went completely sour in your life. It doesn't matter who you are or what your circumstances are. There's one universal rule that applies to every man across the board, and that one rule across the board is fear God. At the beginning of the book of Proverbs, he's going to say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so across the board, if you get nothing else out of the book of Ecclesiastes, if you walk away with nothing else from the amount of really good advice that he's going to give in the book of Proverbs, if you come away with no knowledge or understanding or memory of the details, remember this one thing, whoever you are, wherever you are, the one thing you must do, fear God. And yet... In this sinful, God-forsaken, evil generation, seems like the vast majority of people have forgotten that one thing, that one very important thing above all else. Look, life is life. That's Solomon's attitude. Life happens, it goes by like the wind. Life flies by. It might go good. It might go bad. You never know what's coming. Never know what's waiting for you around the corner. Life is life. That's just it. But there's one universal reality for absolutely everybody who's alive. And that one universal rule for everybody, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what you've been through, no matter what excuses you make for yourself, the end of everything after it's all come down to vanity, 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 the one thing that is necessary and important is fear God. And that word doesn't mean be afraid of God. It means reverence God. Revere God for who he is and knowing that he is a jealous God and knowing that he is the judge of the universe, a bit of fear is indeed very wise. So you want wisdom? You're reading wisdom literature? You're looking at the wisdom books? You want some wisdom? He said, okay, I've done all the life stuff. I've done the Epicurean. I've done the Stoic. I've done all the approaches there are. And I've seen that in the end, it's all vanity, and then if you're fortunate, you grow old, and then you die. If you die before you grow old, then there's tragedy. What I've figured out is no matter what it is under the sun, it all just comes down to vanity and vanity of vanities. There's only one thing that matters. God did not make you because he was lonely. God was not looking for a buddy. He put you here on the planet to fear and reverence him. He put you on the planet to worship him. 
He put you on the planet so that he could glorify himself. And if you're not serving that function, then everything in life is pointless. No matter what you've done, in the end, vanity of vanities. The conclusion, when everything has been heard, is fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment. And everything that is hidden, whether it is good or evil, will be brought into God's judgment. God is going to judge the good. He's going to judge the evil. And we've seen that all the way through the Bible. It's one of the most universal themes of the whole Bible, that ultimately God is a judge. So, what's the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes then? Fear God. Fear God. And if God is absolutely sovereign, and he is, then whatever he has put in your life right here, right now, enjoy it. Be grateful for it. Because this life goes by like a hurricane, just flies by. So be grateful, enjoy your life as it comes, and above everything, fear God. And that's the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. God willing, next week, we'll start the Proverbs, and you're going to find that the Proverbs begin right about where we left off here. So we will pick that up next week. Questions? So we're all good? Then say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.